I always think today, were it not for stories, we would have no imagination to lead our lives. Society and civilization would not have progressed if it weren't for the imagination of people who are not us. And I always think, what are we not imagining? What are we not allowing ourselves to imagine? Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question What's in a story? You know, we talk a lot about storytelling on this podcast, but just for a second, I want to explore the word story itself. You know, I like to think about stories as gifts when I think about them, when I visualize a story in my mind, in that telling our stories that we, we take a moment from our own experience or from somebody else's experience and we wrap it up, we wrap up this gift the best way we know how and we hand it to somebody else with a card attached to it. And on that card, it says, let's unwrap this slowly together. I want you to feel my intention. I want you to understand why I'm giving this to you. I want you to experience something that's important to me, something that I hope might become important to you. Please don't throw it away or unwrap it so fast that you miss the layers. Don't open it when you're preoccupied or half paying attention. This is a part of me you now hold in your hands. Treat it with care. Now, obviously, we don't say those words when we give other people our stories, when we tell other people our stories. But somewhere, I believe, that is the communication that we make. That is the, the heart-based communication that we are making when we are vulnerable enough to offer up the stories that are important to us, that matter to us. That is the preciousness of the stories that we tell. And that is why when we learn how to tell them, how to wrap them the best possible way, the most compelling possible way, they are the greatest and most impactful gift that we can give. Which is also why when I came across a book called How to Tell Your Story So the World Listens, I was immediately all in. My guest today is Bobette Buster. Bobette is an acclaimed lecturer, award-winning producer, and author whose workshops are sought after by top media companies, including Disney, Pixar, Sony, the BBC, Google, SoulCycle. Her groundbreaking philosophy and process give people the ability to uncover and tell their own stories. Her unique ability to crack into the heart of a story has been transforming the way that individuals, entrepreneurs, and companies tell their stories for well over two decades. She has been named, and I love this, as Hollywood's best kept secret by 21st Century Fox Studios. She is also the author of How to Tell Your Story So That the World Listens. In this conversation, we explore why stories are so fundamental to the fabric of our lives, 
how they act as a map of the wilderness almost, you know, a prescription for courage. Why Pixar, Disney and other studios spend a whopping $1 billion a year on the quest for unique stories and exactly what they look for. Why she starts every coaching conversation with one question. Tell me a story about yourself that others will never know. And then, wait for it, this is interesting, waits for the third answer. Not the first, not the second, the third. The difference between story receiving and storytelling and why being heard is so close to being loved, it is almost indistinguishable. My new favorite quote. How to hold space for the stories of the people in our lives and communities. A rare art, and it is a far too rare art, which asks us to be both fiercely gentle and also gently fierce. Finally, the ripple effect of the ordinary. Why the most powerful stories we own are so often overlooked and how to trust in the power of your own experience. A loving warning here. There is mention in this episode of Nazi death camps. I will leave it up to you whose ears are listening and how you take care of yourself. For me, as usual, this didn't turn out to be the conversation that I was intending to have. I, I had prepared for an interview around the words of storytelling. You know, a mistake which, to be honest, I should know better by now. Instead, as always, this conversation went exactly where it needed to go. And that was as a reminder to me about the sacredness rather than just the strategy of our use of storytelling as influencers. The power of stories to heal, to connect and to communicate truths that cannot take or survive any other form. It made me reconsider how I receive and hold space for the stories of the people in my own life and where in many cases I fail to do so. How I treat the gift of their stories and whether I rush through or stop and unwrap with care. Now I heard a quote today that said, justice is how we love in public. And maybe story receiving is what happens before we open that front door. Either way, I intend to get a whole lot better at it. For those of you looking to take your journey and influence to the next level right now, do not forget to jump onto my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and the seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to rapidly increasing your own level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to pull a Christmas cracker. My newsletter, Influence Insider, also gives you one bite-sized tool, strategy, or mindset shift per week, all on the topic of building a more influential life. Once again, hop onto my website, juliemasters.com, to become an insider. For now, grab whatever caffeinated beverage you are into at the moment, or just plug in and hit the road, safely of course, and enjoy the wisdom, the hard-won wisdom of the incredible Babette Buster. Welcome to the podcast, Babette Buster. So good to have you here. That's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, we were just saying um, off air, which is, you know, I was also saying is the story of my life, the conversations that happen off air, but um, that there are so many intersections 
between your world and mine. And I'm really looking forward to jumping into those today. But before before we go there, just wanted to kick off with the question that I always kick off with at the beginning of the podcast. And that is what one idea is having the most impact or influence on your thinking right now? Because those who find and listen to incredible ideas tend to discover them before the rest of us. So what's your one? What's the one idea impacting you the most? Well, the one idea is actually part of the second question you asked me to uh, answer. So, uh, but, but upon thinking about this one idea, what's coursing through the United States now, I would imagine around the world, is that Kanye West, the artist known as Ye, uh, has done a, a series of anti-Semitic uh, posts and podcasts that have just electrified uh, the world uh, because he his he has twice as many followers as Jewish people exist on the planet, and this has had a, such a, an enlarging and dangerous effect around the world, and has finally caused a lot of his sponsors to cancel. And this relates to this larger issue in the United States that we've been grappling with certainly since January 6, 2021, which is uh, this phenomenon of election deniers, people who simply choose to believe what they've been told and are not looking at the facts. Now, this has been going on for some time. And the reason I'm fascinated with this is partly because it's terrifying, because if you get all these people who are running for major offices saying, if I lose, it was fraud, that that sort of cancels democracy. Uh, and But it relates, me, it relates back to uh, a recent study I did of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian in uh, World War II, who's German, and he chose to leave his position at Union Theological Seminary in New York City and return to Nazi Germany on the very last boat, a cattle boat, with the last place he could get there, because he said he could not not be in his own country as he was watching what was happening with the rise of the Third Reich. And he joined a, a plot with his brother and brother-in-law to assassinate Hitler. And they were arrested. They, they're their various attempts failed, and they were arrested in 1943. And in his 18 months in prison, he began to really ponder what had happened to the great nation that he loved so much of Germany, nation of great thinkers and poets and, and scientists. And he could only conclude that there is an issue of what he called the theory of stupidity. And he would he analyzed it this way. He said, intelligent people can become stupid. It's a choice. And, and people you might think lower of in intelligence can be highly moral. And so he was examining what is the problem of groups of people who become stupid and they become an echo chamber, an echo chamber amongst themselves. He said they're highly dangerous. They usually follow an authoritarian leader. And it's not something you're born with. It's a, it's a trait of agreement with a crowd, with a group, so it's sociological. And he said, they're, they're dangerous because they will attack you. You cannot reason with them. And it causes the crowd to become cowards and crooks and criminals, and they don't care. And he said, the only thing you can hope for in dealing with people who take on this uh, 
persona because they will just recite back to you buzzwords and slogans and mantras there's an, there's like this dense wall that you cannot speak to he said the only thing you can hope for is an internal awakening and so what i've thought about as we have become so polarized now in these sort of dangerous waters that are so much like what happened in the mid 20th century is i think well do people respond to good people like if nelson mandela were to arrive on the scene today would people suddenly do an about face and say just the sort of the uranium of his goodness radiates so much that i want to be a better person and i do think that is a fact that when we are around truly good people it makes something in us become stronger and larger and we want to follow them and so what is uh, what is called upon us each as individuals is we we can't become polarized we can't bicker with people we don't agree with that you can get nowhere so it to me it's a great call right now to address the issue of what is our example in the world because that's the only way we're going to change things you know one of the one of the the things that got me into the world that that I have been in for the past 20 years is I started studying um Nazi Germany at at school and I got into reading books about that era of time and what drove me through which is a strange thing for a, a teenager to be doing and what drove me through all of it and and at a level has driven me since although it's gone in, in completely different directions is this question of what makes a message or a human being or an idea so compelling that it can have that kind of impact so purely what is the mechanism of that what is the structure of that what is the code of that and if it can be used over here with such catastrophic effects can it not be decoded and used somewhere else for the betterment of all i've spent uh, my entire career studying um the story behind the story. Initially, you know, it was just the air I breathed. I was always around great storytellers growing up in the region. I grew up in um, the heartland of America, Kentucky. And, you know, as the crow flies uh, from my family farm, which was a Revolutionary War land grant farm, which meant that my forebearer fought in the Revolutionary War. As it happens, he fought with George Washington at Valley Forge. But not far in Kentucky was where Abraham Lincoln was born, as well as D.W. Griffith, who was the founder of modern cinema, and Cassius Clay, who became Muhammad Ali. And so it was a region very rich in storytelling, and, uh, and I would say it was the primary form of entertainment. But what, what you began to realize is that everybody had a story, everybody had a point of view, and this was a region in the United States where it was brother against brother in the Civil War. There were abolitionists against slaveholders. And, and out of that came Abraham Lincoln and Muhammad Ali. And in this sort of cauldron 
iron sharpening iron uh, in this horrific way. And it was the greatest slaughter still in American history, how many young men died. Uh, it was all based on what is equality, what is fair. And we're exactly facing the same arguments today in the United States. And so what I'm compelled by, is you just said, is what is the value of an idea to change the world? And so I've spent my entire career looking at the big ideas. And literally, you know, with, with when you're developing movies, which is, you know, I live in Hollywood and that's what I was doing for most of my career was developing movies, is you always say, the first question is, what's the big idea of this film? What are we really talking about? What is the film hanging on? And, uh, you know, a film such as, say, Schindler's List, you know, and here we are back in Nazi Germany, you know, it took Steve Zalian, it was Thomas Keneally, of course, who discovered the story, you know, the great Australian author, and he, he needed a piece of luggage fix while he was in Beverly Hills, found himself in the very luggage store uh, owned by the Pfefferbergs who were saved by Oscar Schindler. And they, while he was getting his luggage fixed, because he was supposed to be going to the airport to fly home to Sydney, he, uh, they said, we have a story for you, because they opened his luggage, saw he was a writer. And you know, writers get that all the time. Somebody wants to sort of corner you and say, I want my story told. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they took him in the back of their luggage store and they had a giant file cabinet with all this correspondence from what the people who were saved by Schindler, they called themselves Schindler's Jews. And they themselves had orchestrated a campaign to get Oscar Schindler named a righteous person in Jerusalem. And then they proceeded to tell Thomas Keneally that this was the story of a good Nazi which just saying that expression makes your head spin. There's, we, we cannot think about that as being a possibility. But as he delved into the story, he saw that it was a great story of transformation. And uh, so lo and behold, he of course ended up writing the book and got the Booker Prize for it. And it was uh, bought by Universal Studios for Steven Spielberg to direct. And then it took about 10, 12 years before with multiple screenwriters before Steve Zalian sort of cracked what the script should be. And here was the big idea of Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler wants simply to get rich in the war. He is a black marketeer. He's the bon vivant. If you're going to be in war, you want to be hanging around Oscar Schindler. He's going to give you a good time. And he just wants to profit off the war and be able to leave with one, maybe two steamer trunks full of ripe marks. And that's what he says. And in the course of the story, what he discovers is what is, he always talks about nice things cost money. And he's going to do whatever it is to get those things. His point of view shifts to realizing the, what is the value of life. And if nice things cost money, what could money buy insofar as human life? And so he spends his whole fortune. He bets the ranch and buys the freedom of 1,100 Jews. Uh, the irony being, of course, is that within a few months of all that transaction he did with Amon Gers, Reichmarks were worthless. So if he'd tried to escape with his trunks full of money, he would have had nothing. But what he gets in the end 
is the reality, the humbling reality of what is value of life. But the interesting thing about the film is that Oscar Schindler, having gone through this amazing transformation, is grief-stricken because he laments how much he might, how many more he might have saved if he hadn't been so profligate. And, and so that kind of extraordinary transformation to say, what is the value of things? That is what you're looking for with all stories is what is the big idea? So getting back to our subject about, you know, what are the ideas today that are moving us? I just, you know, heard this great black writer today, uh, Clint Smith, say that uh, just in passing, he that, you know, if it weren't for the imagination of the abolitionists, we would never have had the progression in history to the Civil War, which led to the Emancipation Proclamation, and then led to where we are today. And I thought, wait a minute, abolitionists, you're giving them credit for having imagination. But in fact, it was a, a movement that gained momentum took about 350 years, and it began with a few people, Quakers in England and a few others, who said, you know, why aren't we all equal? Who are we to say that these black people in Africa are cattle? Who are we to claim that? That's for our own gain. And so they had the imagination to believe there was a world where everybody was equal. Now, that is actually to us obvious, duh. But at that time, it was radical. And so I always think today, what a, were it not for stories, we would have no imagination to lead our lives. Society and civilization would not have progressed if it weren't for the imagination of people who are not us. And I always think, what are we not imagining? What are we not, not allowing ourselves to imagine? You know, again, we keep talking about the collision between your world and mine. Clint Smith is one of my all-time favorite writers and orators. And I actually, I had, I remember I was running a session yesterday on storytelling for a group of, um, it was a group of leaders, some of which actually ran, run the prison system here in Australia. And one, I played them a five-minute excerpt from Clint Smith. So yesterday afternoon I was playing them, Clint Smith, because he just has, for anyone who's listening, his ability to storytell, his ability to combine a message with a story, with his body language, with his voice, use every tool at his disposal to make an impact, to become compelling to the people he's trying to reach is just off the charts. Incredible. And, and he's definitely a hero of mine in that space. When we're going to get onto storytelling, I just, there's a quote, and again, it's a quote that I have shared before. And when I was jumping into your world, I started watching a video. And the first thing you put on the screen you were presenting was this quote. And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to like this lady a lot. Um, and the quote was, the universe isn't made of atoms, it's made of tiny stories. And you know, I, when I first read that quote, there was just this this sense of it being so abstract but so fundamentally true in a way that I couldn't, I can't practically <laughs> describe why that feels so fundamentally true. What 
what is it about stories? Let's start there. What is it about stories that they are so fundamental to the fabric of our lives? I think that we are hardwired to uh, to be storytellers and to learn from stories. Um, this is where communication begins. This is, you know, when babies are born, they're born with absolute wonder and curiosity. But, you know, it was uh, Albert Einstein who said, if you want your children to be smart, read them fairy tales. And if you want them to be really smart, read them more fairy tales. And there was, this leads me to the fact that there was this um, child psychologist, Bruno Bettelheim, who wrote uh, a seminal book called The Uses of Enchantment that became in 1977 and he won the National Book Award for it. But Bruno Bettelheim wrote this book because it was based on his experience in uh, the 1930s. He, Bruno Bettelheim was Jewish and he and his family were living in Vienna and they were taken by the SS to Bergen-Belsen and Dachau. And um, Bruno Bettelheim, in a fluke of history, Adolf Hitler uh, decided on his birthday, April 20th, 1939, that he would allow just a few hundred prisoners to be released to the United States. And Bettelheim, being um, a child psychologist, would had an invitation from the University of Chicago. He was able to be released. I think he was in Dachau, I believe. He lost his entire family in the Holocaust. But he said that upon looking back at it through all these decades from 39 to when he wrote the book uh, 35 years later, he said that he observed that the children in the concentration camp, the death camp, those children who had been read fairy tales, and I mean particularly Brothers Grimm fairy tales, the Grimm ones, not the Disney ones, he said they were prepared for life's inevitable challenges, traumas, setbacks. And that is to say, the Brothers Grimm went around, you know, all of Eastern Europe to every remote mountain hamlet and, and, and valley and collected the oral history that had been passed down from millennia of folk tales. And there was a commonality and a thread to many of these folk tales. And the threads went along this way, that someday a wolf may come to your door Someday you may be thrown into an oven. But if you can get out and go through the forest, even if you are alone, just put one foot in front of the other. Allies will come alongside and help you. And forces will align and take you through. And you will get through this and you will live happily ever after. Now, living happily ever after isn't eating bonbons and you know, never having another care in the world, it is psychologically preparing you for life's inevitable problems. Now, how do you tell children, toddlers, that, oh, you know, when you get to the playground, you're gonna be bullied and that's gonna be a bad thing. No, they, they can't comprehend that. But if you tell them, read the story of the ugly duckling, the poor ugly duckling was picked on by every other duck in the pond, but one day the duckling flew off grew up and became a beautiful swan and met their mate for, and lived happily after after with one mate. That is preparing a child's psyche to spiritually grow. And I always think that 
we grow from hearing stories. We grow from the imagination of others. Not only that, there creates a community, especially children with their parents. You know, you're sitting beside them. You are being cuddled as you are read to. And the very important thing is to visualize, not to look at a screen. I mean, that's entertaining. That's the kind of babysitting you want for your kids. But you vi- but the ability to visualize yourself surviving and then thriving. This is critical to human development. And so many neuroscientific story, uh, studies have been now about the importance of stories and developing meaning and uh, well-being and resilience. And that's a critical thing in human nature is how do you survive First of all, the traumas, the travails we'll all experience. How do you survive the boring times? How do you get through? How do you find meaning? And, you know, that is what we have to do with each other is we tell stories to break down our barriers. So I think fundamentally we can't live without stories. It's as important as breathing and eating and love. You use this beautiful phrase, um, I've heard you use this phrase, which is that stories are prescriptions for courage. And I just, I don't know if I have heard a more succinct way of describing the role that story plays in our lives, in our children's lives, in our lives societally, in, you know, storytelling as leaders, the essence of what story is and the essence of what story does is it gives us a usually some form of prescription for courage. Talk to me about, um, you know, you, you've, you work in story development for Pixar, for Disney. And, you know, I've heard you say that those functions spend over a billion dollars a year just in story development, just for looking for the next big story. What are you, what are you looking for? You know, we've talked about the, the role that story plays in our lives. What, if a story is powerful, what, what are you looking for? What makes a powerful story for you? All stories frame great stories, stories that you and I cherish. And each one of us have our own favorites, right, that we hold dear. Uh, but all stories frame a moment when a person walks through their fear and into the unknown. Uh, and that is terrifying to that person. And usually it is a baby step. And you're going in a direction you never planned to go, but it presents itself as a threshold. And you have to make a choice. Are you going to do it or not? And the great stories is you watch someone tremulously choosing to do that one thing they could not do. And once they do... And I, this is where I really, you know, there are many people who, uh, and religions who talk about this, you know, the Goethe would talk about whatever you can do, do it. There's boldness and genius in the action. Kierkegaard talked about the leap of faith and that idea that once you leap, you grow the wings. Uh, But the Japanese have this temple in Kyoto. It was built in like 778. It's huge. It's 13 stories tall and it's in this gorgeous forest. It's called Kiyomizu. And when you get there, I mean, it's still existing, you have to walk up 13 great flights. But before you can walk up these giant wooden staircases, you have to take a 
a sip of water from a sacred, sacred spout, and there are three spouts, and you have to choose one. One is wealth, second one is health, and the other one is wisdom. And you decide one of those things, and you drink uh, from that spout. And then you walk up these 13 great flights, and then you come to a huge open platform overlooking the forest. And it used to be without a railing. And they would say, at that moment, you stand on the stage, that's what they call this great platform, and you make a conscious choice towards your destiny, and you leap. And in the leaping, you discover who you are. Now, they call this daitansa, uh, which in Japanese actually means jumping off the Kiyomizu stage. But the expression is very important. It is that conscious choice. And uh, unfortunately, some people have literally done it and sort of fallen to their deaths, but they've said a number of people, like they declare that a lot of people actually live to tell the tale. <laughs> but it's meant to be, of course, uh, a, a visualization exercise for taking responsibility for your life, your choice alone, and stepping into the unknown. So there are countless stories, movies we love, where we see someone doing that. And that, I believe, activates a courage in us that we never knew before. And that is what we're looking for in all stories, if it's going to be a great story, is what is that moment of choice? And at first it will seem almost inconsequential, but in the activation of that choice, you watch a person become fully alive and live the life they never knew was possible. You will hear people say, I am living beyond my dreams. I never had the imagination for this. Those are people who have activated that one and made that one small step and discovered a great unknown. And that's what you're looking for in stories. The Again, we're coming back to this prescription for courage piece again. And... I know you talk a lot about muscle memory, which again is interesting to me because I talk about muscle memory, but from a very different place, which is taking to the stage. And when you take to the stage, there's that first kind of two to five minutes that it takes for your body to settle down, for the adrenaline to leave your system. And, you know, when the adrenaline is coursing through you, that front part of your brain just shuts down and you're in fight or flight. And that's usually when you forget what you're doing. But if you can practice it enough times to make it muscle memory, then you'll move through that first two to five minutes, your body will calm down, your brain will come back online. And so if you practice anything, that first two to five minutes is key because that's when your brain is pretty much offline in that moment. But you talk about muscle memory at this other place, which is that it's not just by the doing that we develop muscle memory, it's by the listening we can also, the listening and the visualizing that we can also develop muscle memory. And I've, I've never heard somebody come at it from that perspective before. Can you, can you talk to what that looks like? Well, you often hear uh, super athletes. These are the gods and goddesses amongst us who already, you know, are gifted and endowed with superior athletic prowess. And you hear them, and they're at the top level of of their field and you know they've had all this support from the great coaches and 
and all the money they get from, you know, being on the Wheaties boxes and everything. They have everything going for them. And you will hear them say, I had to learn visualization. I had to imagine, you know, the golfer Jordan Spieth saying, I had to keep imagining the ball going into the hole. I've heard this from great swimmers and Olympic athletes at all levels. They have to take the time. There was a great American uh, diver, Laura Wilkinson, who broke her ankle before the Sydney Olympics. And she should have been just, you know, that would have been it. But her coach said she had su such superior visualization skills that he said, just go into the arena, feel the humidity and all the noise and the tension of the crowd, stand by the pool and visualize every nanosecond of the dive. Because she couldn't practice. She had broken her ankle. And she did that. And I remember the, you know, the cameras coming along saying, there's Laura Wilkinson practicing her thing, you know, and they were sort of making fun of her. And on the day of the dive, they had to build a sock for her to climb up 10 meters. She goes all the way to the top and stands on her hands and walks down to the end of the dive, uh, diving board, and executes this perfect dive and wins the With goal. a broken ankle. With a broken ankle. Because she had envisioned, and she said when she did that, the day of the actual dive, now I think you have to do it two or three times because they're averaging, you know, those t scores or whatever. She said she could actually, she was in such a state of flow and meditative calm that she could feel her parents smiling at her. She could just feel it. And she had visualized it. Now, I keep hearing this over and over again from top, top level people. They could visualize it. They could see it. And that ability to sort of get into this state and allow yourself to visualize this thing that you must do, but then also this state of being open to the unknown and allowing someone else's imagination or the world to give you a vision and then you put yourself there, which is effectively what storytelling is. But I find that that is also works with listening because, you know, most of us are too busy to tune in to others around us. We're going, yeah, 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 and oh, that's nice. And, <laughs> and now we accept it as, as normal that we're all multitasking and looking at our phones and we're not tuning in to people. The fact is, is that you cannot do two things at once when you're listening. You are locked in. And once you're truly listening, your life, your worldview is expanded. You are going beyond yourself. And you are tuning in to another point of view, and you're sort of twice the person. It's a sort of stereophonic life that you're living because you are, you are in communion with other people and with that person. And that is enlargement. And that's how we grow. And it's also, there's a, an extension to storytelling there as well that I haven't thought of before, because if by the act of, so you've got the act of listening, but then on the other side, by the act of telling a story, you are giving a gift that enables another human being to visualize themselves in a situation which gives them a degree or more of muscle memory that they didn't have before that then when they find themselves in a situation to call on that muscle memory, it is there. And so that takes the gift of offering our stories to, to another level. You are not just 
giving somebody another perspective you're not giving them entertainment you're not just inspiring them you know i'm going to inspire people it's not just about inspiring it's literally it's a it's a gift to somebody else's life to give them that muscle memory so they can take that onwards absolutely i mean i've heard time and time again people say well there's a movement now uh, you know with why aren't there more you know women's role models or people of color seen in roles in television and film and if they there's that psychological hurdle that if you've never seen someone like you doing it you believe oh it can't be done i can't do that who am i and so there's that thing if you can see it you can be it so in telling the story uh, or you know creating a story that people can suddenly visualize themselves doing that then you know all bets are off but there's something that has to be triggered in the ability to uh in your own, each of us need to be triggered to see ourselves doing something and that happens from being told a story living in the imagination of others because none of us have enough imagination to lead our lives we simply don't so we need the imagination of others and there's also something about being listened to most of us you know when <laughs> what i find with listening is people either say oh my god that person made me listen to all of that or they say that person really listens and they and that is one of the highest compliments you can give someone and that sense that people someone is tuning in to you truly listening to you you feel yourself actually traveling in a further place in your psyche and in your own imagination you feel heard you feel like there's a wider field out there there's a place you can fly you can go with your thoughts and and uh you're not just staying cramped in and trying to be normal and uh, polite and just get through it you expand i know that you you spend a lot of time creating spaces for other people to expand creating spaces for people to find and express their stories in a way that will hopefully enable them to travel enable other people at scale to travel with them and right. I've heard you say that it's one of the questions that you ask is tell tell us a story about yourself that others um that others will never know. And that you said that usually the first two stories that they tell in those moments are completely inconsequential. But it's the third story that they tell in those moments that's the story. The story I don't know if that's what you would call the story behind the story but that's the story that cuts through. What why is it the third story? Um it's interesting it's I see it as almost uh you know this mystery of the rule of 3s that we often use in music we and talk about that a lot on this yeah on this yeah. podcast the rule of 3 and it is a mystery why 3 no one knows yeah it's just there and uh I I think you know when you're getting a group rolling and um there's all this embarrassment and everybody wants to be cool and they don't you know they want to make fun of the moment And of course I'm American so they just assume that I, you know, have no barriers to uh, what I'll do. And um and that's what I'm actually trying to do is to break down the defenses of the group 
to truly listen. And frankly, everybody wants to tell their story. Everybody wants to be heard. And once you crack through, it's like cracking an egg. Everything is you know, right there to be fried, to be eaten, whatever, however you want to take the metaphor. People are just chomping at the bit to tell their story and they want to be heard and it creates it creates community. You are truly sitting around the fire. There is such warmth and people are generous and giving just by their spirit. And then as if on cue after, you know, so many minutes of listening to one person's story, somebody will say something funny and everybody has to laugh because they've been so, they need a release. And then they're ready to go back in again and share this. And I've seen it create sort of a phenomenon, a group phenomenon of, of bonding because people have been vulnerable and, and it creates kindness. I've, I've never seen it to end in any kind of ridicule or shame or cliquishness. I've always seen it create uh, a larger spirit calls into question the importance of creating those spaces not just in I'm thinking of my family right now you know to how easy it is to run by each other dash past each other be very functional with each other and consciously creating those spaces where the stories of our lives get honored held told received and also within our organizations and you know I've been in those rooms sometimes where a leader will share a story and you can tell it's a story that they're nervous about sharing. It's maybe a story that feels very intimate from their own lives. It's maybe a story that shows vulnerability, a story that doesn't necessarily in their minds mesh with who they want to be perceived to be as a leader. It might be around failure. It might be around weakness. Um, and the impact of sharing that story in the right environment, held in the right way, is profound on the connectedness of that team and that leader's connection to their team. How do we hold those spaces? Because again, I don't want anyone that's listening to think that, you know, suddenly anyone in a leadership position should suddenly write an email, you know, detailing areas of their life that they, you know, they don't feel comfortable sharing. That's not what I'm saying at all. There are very specific times and places and environments to share within. How do we go about consciously creating them for our families, for our teams, for our communities? Well, there's definitely, uh, I'm very aware of the responsibility that I'm holding the space when I do these events, uh, these workshops, you know, I prefer smaller groups around 15, although I just did one with 50 people. I was... Uh, the issue really is to create a sense of um, trust and vulnerability and I'm holding the space so I'm not going to allow it to veer off there are occasionally people who just talk too much and you've got to sort of rein them in and then you've got to work with those people who are just so shy and don't feel like they have anything to say or they're just going to block and parry everything you say and you gently give them, find a way for them to come out from behind, you know, the mask that they have. But I would say a critical thing that I find with groups is the, 
you will eventually start laughing together, and that is a huge breakthrough. But the ability to be vulnerable, appropriately vulnerable, and that you have to go out gently. Uh, it's embarrassing if people, you know, it's not meant to be therapy. It's not meant to be, you know, some sort of gestalt group from the new age, you know, 70s or 80s or whatever. In being, it's being authentic with, with uh, someone. You know, there have been these neuroscientific uh, studies that, you know, we could begin here with this subject, that I grew up and we had wonderful dinners around the table with all the generations at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, the big holidays, right? And, uh, and they were very rich times in storytelling, largely because it began gently. You know, I remember that time, you know? And the elders would start talking about what it was like to go through the Depression or, you know, World War II. And it would usually be some offhand comment, oh, that time we had to do, you know, the house burned down and we barely got, you know, Shirley out of the crib in time. And I wish I'd thought to bring the, at least her blanket, but I didn't. And, it, and it's sort of offhand, but then it leads you to this deeper understanding that the elder generations went through hard times. And something about hearing that gives you a resilience to think, well, if they can do it, I can too. And so uh, there was these uh, professors of neuroscience at Emory University in Georgia who were studying the effect of generations sharing story. And what they discovered is that those children who had listened to the stories of their parents, but particularly their grandparents, had a greater sense of well-being and resilience. Literally, they could imagine that if their previous generations had gotten through something, and imagine what our grandparents got through, and great-grandparents, depression, war, all those things, then they thought, well, I can too. And so this idyllic, you know, it starts off as a, a just an ordinary family gathering, but giving yourself time to listen and stay in the room and not be looking at your iPhones, not be racing off because you're bored, but being together, sharing those things are just, they're just treasures. They're ju they are, they, but it comes from being gently with the group and not racing off to be distracted by, you know, the latest sports on television or, you know, you're bored to tears, so you've got to check your phone in case someone has texted you. It's being present, being here now. And in my experience growing up, I now value those memories more than anything. You mentioned there holding a holding a gentle space, which again, the language really strikes me. We talk a lot in my world and I know in, in your world and in the therapeutic world about the term holding space. And I think it's just easy to throw that that term around without ever really defining it. What does it mean? What does it mean to you to hold space? I think now we have to uh, cherish those intimate moments. Like I was recently talking to a friend of mine who has adopted a 13-year-old boy, comes from a very traumatized family. And um, he said that the only time he can get this young kid to speak to him is on the ride to school and the ride back. 
And something about the intimate space of being in the car and the kid in the and you, the parent, are driving along, so you're not looking at them eye to eye, full force. You say, "How did how did it go today?" And the child may be in the back seat or maybe beside you, and they go, "Well, I did this and that, and so and so said this, and the teacher said that." That is an intimate space, and that become my friend who has adopted this thirteen-year-old said that he looks forward to those moments, and they're short rides, ten, fifteen minutes, but that is the only time he can get the thirteen-year-old kid to open up, and I think in real life these days, we have to recognize these pockets of time. They may only be ten minutes or fifteen minutes. They're gentle spaces where you're not sitting down and saying, "Now tell me who you are, what's going on with you," which is always feels forced and embarrassing. But you know, it's sitting in you know the lobby waiting for a doctor's appointment. It's you know, on your way to go shopping. What's happening? If a person knows that you're available to listen, but it's not going to be confrontational, that it's just a shared life experience. We're going to do something together. They will open up because they can plan on it. And I, but I think I think we have to consciously safeguard those places. You know, so if your child gets in the car with you, you don't immediately put on music or get on the phone or you know talk. Mm. You know, mothers talk, right? It's just one of the beauty of the of that kind of community and the story I hear over and over again is the story of exactly what you're saying creating creating a gentle non-confrontational space and it could look like there's a friend of mine it looks like she takes the dog for a walk every day after dinner and she said and every single time you know some days it doesn't happen but most days one of the kids will say I'll come with you and it's the act of walking side by side not face-to-face, not confrontational, it's not about talking because we're here to walk the dog, that they will open up and they will unravel. Another mother I know said, you know, I, she's, she's quite accomplished in the corporate field and she was like, look, I don't need to do my own ironing necessarily. She said, I could, I don't love it. It's something that I could outsource from my life if I wanted to. But I will iron on a Sunday for you know an hour hour and a half I'll stand at the back of the lounge room because again every single time that non-confrontational space one of my kids will wander in and just sit down not necessarily looking at me and start talking and that's one of the very few times that I can get them I can get them to open up so you know as you said noticing and then guarding you know fiercely guarding those spaces you've mentioned another beautiful quote which I wanted to bring in here, which um, I think it's, I'm going to, I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce this right. David Augsburger said, being heard is so close to being loved. It is almost indistinguishable. And I just think that that is so true. I think that the, uh, I, I was just reflecting about this woman who was ironing. I, that was very much my childhood. We, the women in my family, aunts, grandmothers would iron, and somehow rather sitting near them as they were about a task, you would suddenly just open up. It was sort of, you'd created a hearth. But another task I remember is baking, you know, 
just doing something for the hell of it. And you're, and I know for the guys, my brothers, you know, doing a task that has to be done, you know, mowing the lawn or whatever that might be, or, you know, manly things, whatever they are, you know, it's the doing of something that requires maybe its own closure or appearance of closure, but you can talk at the same time. Something about the, it's, it's a sacred space, but it's ordinary. And I often reflect on the fact that it's in the ordinary moments, not the extraordinary ones, the ordinary moments, that if you recognize them, that's where it happens. Now, if you get into problems, as we've all had with family dynamics or ourselves, where we say, oh, we have to go to a therapist and we have to work this out, that is a very focused and uh, frightening thing, especially if you're going with, well, for a lot of people, it's just completely anxiety-provoking. But certainly for couples or anybody, a, a therapy uh, situation is high performance. You are being judged, you feel, or you're having to defend yourself from someone, or you're explaining your position. So what you're seeking to do, really, I mean, it's just the gentle side of life. What are the ordinary things that must get done? And really, when we are looking at storytelling from the point of view of movies, uh, what we're looking for are the ordinary moments that you would almost not even observe as anything special looking at them on the big silver screen. But it's in the ordinary moments that a person chooses to do the one thing they have never done, and then it becomes extraordinary. So I think sort of relishing uh, the ordinary moments of life in a whole nother way is extremely important to a life of balance and 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 just tuning in. And a life of um, a life of connection. You know, we talk about stories being the fabric, stories being the atom. You know, a life of connection to those that we choose to and, and hope to be connected to. I just want to, I want to flip our conversation for a moment. You know, we've, we've talked about the receiving of stories now and the importance of receiving stories. And, and that's really refreshing to me because a lot of this podcast is often about storytelling and I love because the, there's no point telling stories unless there are people on the planet who are able and willing to receive our stories. But I do want to go into storytelling for just a moment because you you have just the most incredible rich experience in storytelling at the highest of levels. And I know you have, you know, 10 principles of storytelling that you talk to. And I wanted to go in just to to a few of those for anybody out there listening who wants to tell their story, who wants to identify and and tell their story at a at a level that means that they can connect, they can hopefully kick off movements, kick off companies, you know, kick off change, programs of change. How do you go about firstly finding, you know, finding the essence of someone's story? How do you start that process? Well, you know, it's uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson who said that usually within three to five sentences of getting to know someone, they are actually telling you who they are, what they want to do, and what they're about. And so if you're listening, you're actually listening to this undercurrent of who they want to be, or what's on their mind. 
And so I guess over time, that's what I immediately tune into when I'm with someone. And, and what I'm listening to is that element of uh, most of us are, in storytelling, there are like, for cinema, there are these various stages that lead to transformation, cinema being the art form of transformation. And there are four stages that humans, all of us, go through. And then the fifth, so those would be, we're born into a world and we think that's the way it is and why should it be ever anything different? And that could be anything from you're born, you're born in you know United States or Australia, Western civilization. You want what that world wants, you know, um, a, a great house, a great job, a, you know, education, children, all those things. Or you could be born into the poorest of situations, and what you want is just enough water. The next day you walk to the water hole to possibly you know, water your garden or wash your clothes or or drink for a few days. You are born into a world and that's all you know. And there's a stage in which something happens in which everything is turned upside down. And what is the number one word for the era we're in? Unprecedented. When COVID fell, they kept saying it's unprecedented. You know, when we had this January 6th, coup at the United States Capitol, they kept saying it's unprecedented, you know, and then Will Smith slaps Chris Rock, and they call it unprecedented, you know, where the world is turned upside down. And that happens to all of us. And it could be a great thing, like when you fall in love, or it could be when you're fired, or you're divorced, you get a your partner says they want a divorce, world is turned upside down. And that is when you start to live. How do you survive that moment of the world being start, uh, turned upside down? And all of us will go through a wilderness, and that is terrifying. But the stage I'm most interested in is as people walk through the wilderness, and some people can't make it there. That's where they fall into addictions, and uh, they will do anything to get back to an ordered life rather than this unknown. But those people who are willing to step, as I said earlier, into the unknown, do the most interesting things. And it's always something uh, sort of obvious to them, but small. Like uh, there was this uh, teacher, the first United States uh, sort of a professor of wildlife management named Aldo Leopold. Uh, and he, uh, this was in the 1930s, uh, he noticed that the land in Wisconsin was sick and exhausted through over uh, farming. It used to be uh, all these sandbanks, and there were these great birds that the cranes, sandhill cranes, that migrated from Argentina all the way up to Newfoundland and stopped in the uh, Wisconsin River Valley by the thousands. They migrated, and they were extinct now. And he just thought, why is that? So he goes and he, you know, he feels that there's something wrong with the way we're living. He said, you know, the land is sick. And so he buys 80 acres of exhausted land just to see what would happen if he could restore it. And he and his wife went out every weekend and planted pine trees, trying to restore it to back what the original area uh, 
ecology was. Ecology wasn't even a word then. They did that for years and years. They planted almost 40,000 of these trees. They also would find like sod, prairie sod, that was healthy sod, and they would cut it in like yard squares and tie it on the roof of their car and take it over and replant it in their field. This went on forever. In 1946, uh, Aldo Leopold was writing a beautiful book of essays that uh, Oxford University Press said that they would um, publish in, you know, great news. And two weeks later, he was out in the fields with his wife and children, you know, planting the pine trees. And some of them were up to his shoulder. Uh, a lot of them had died, so they just kept planting them. And all of a sudden, a fire burst out in his neighbor's um, farm. And he went to help put it out. And he had a heart attack and died. So he never saw the results of what would happen to his farm. But his family kept going. The book was published, had a nice, decent publishing, and 20 years later, late 1960s, his wife and children were sitting in that little, uh, it's called the shack. By now, the trees have grown to being over 80 feet high, and the, the prairie sod has taken over and refilled in all these acres, and all of a sudden, they hear this horn honking in the distance. And the sandhill cranes were coming in by the thousands. And they had been extinct, not seen for decades in this region. And just two years later, it was uh, 1970, it was Earth Day, his book was reintroduced, and it became the absolute book for the environmental movement. So slender volume, beautiful essays about the importance of coming back to harmony with the environment. And it's had this lasting impact, and it's now sold into the millions. And now hundreds, if not thousands of people flock to this remote farm in Wisconsin just to see the annual migration of these sandhill cranes. Now, I bring this up because his only idea was, what if I bought this exhausted farm and planted, replanted some trees? And the first five years, most of them died. They just kept doing this, just planting trees, you know, putting down sod. What if? What if I did this? Simple actions, kind of a fool's, you know, dream. And it turns out to have this rippling effect that is huge. And so what I have done is a study of those kind of advances all of them in fields that now influence our lives. You talk about big ideas, whether it's civil rights or the environment, climate change, etc., have come from people doing the most obvious and seemingly idiotic thing, but just being consistent. Well, let's just keep doing it. Oh, that failed. Well, let's try again. Let's go this way. And it's like a Again, ordinary actions with, with loving care and consistency and never giving up. And it's had giant rippling repercussions. What I'm taking from what, you, from what you're saying there is that there's a, for me in listening to that story, there's a moment in time, right? Like for most of us, there's a moment in time where we suddenly decide, no, we're gonna do something about this or no, we're gonna do something differently. Oh no, today is the day that, that this 
ends and something new begins. And we don't always know what's going to come next. And we have no idea whether it's going to change our life immensely or it's just going to change the next 24 hours. But there's a moment. And, you know, most incredible stories begin at that moment or just before that moment. What are some of the elements, if you think back to the stories that you have read, the stories that you have told, the stories that have impacted you over the years, are there some elements that they have in common? Yeah. I analyze stories all the time and I do see a pattern. Um, it is, well, it's this thing I've harped on several times already. It is that uh, do the one thing in front of that you uh, that you couldn't have imagined doing before, but there it is. Now, all of us, it falls to all of us in our lives that we will be asked to do things that we couldn't have imagined ourselves doing. And those would be the hard things. But then there are the uh, sort of the still small voice things that niggle at you, and you think, well, why not? Why not that? And suddenly you find yourself going that way. Like, like the story of Bill W., the founder of AA, which is such a phenomenal movement worldwide, Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's such a sheltering sort of safe harbor for people who've dealt with alcoholism, and, and it's a successful program. I think it's the most successful change management program um, in the world in terms of numbers of people who have successfully passed through it. And the 12-step program, which took a while to evolve into the 12 steps, you know, as they were, you know, analyzing, as Bill W. was analyzing, it was more convoluted. There were 12 steps and there was another 12 thing, 12 principles and all that. And he finally codified it down to these 12 recognizable steps. But what I always think is interesting about the story is, he's he, and he was such a colorful speaker, and you can, you know, he, he was recorded telling sort of the testimonial uh, of what a terrible drunkard he was, and he could get blinding drunk. And then he had this extraordinary spiritual awakening that was cataclysmic to his whole worldview, and it was overwhelming to him and amazing. And he cried out to God, if you're there, please show yourself to me. And he had this extraordinary uh, encounter, which he relates. But that wasn't enough to get him out of his alcoholism. And, and so he tells the story of it was cocktail hour. He was in a hotel and he was sort of desperate because he knew all the cues were there that would lead him into going into the bar. And it, all it would take would be one drink and then he would be lost, right, for yet another bender. And all of a sudden, one day, he had the idea, it was in Cleveland, and he said, if I could just find one other person who suffers like me, and I could just talk to him, just talk to him. And it needed to be at that hour, that hour of vulnerability, cocktail hour. So friends said, oh, well, there's this guy, Bob. Why don't you talk to Bob? So Bob and Bill W. met, and that was the simple thing, the conversation finding the hour to meet and just be companionable and share their story. And it wasn't necessary, as we know, the whole idea of your, you know, keeping anonymous and, and, and you must honor this sacred space of the two people. 
But that was a that was an ordinary gesture that we would think, yeah, get together with somebody, talk through, you know, make a friend. But that is actually the glue of AA, that you go to a meeting when you're most vulnerable at that hour and you share your story and everybody there is honor bound to listen and hold the space for you and not break, you know, um, you know, the trust and the promise to hold what you've said, you know, sacred. It's such a simple thing. It was a simple action, but in the grand scheme of what it set in motion was everything. That is the foundation. So what I look for in stories is that moment when someone does that ordinary thing they would never have done before that becomes the foundation. And I believe it falls to all of us. It falls to all of us to to recognize that moment and take it on or to tell it. Yes, both. It. I think it's all about listening to that still small voice and you think, well, that's just a little thing. Why would I do that? Or I'll do that tomorrow. But that little thing is the, where the rippling effect happens in your life. There was... What's coming to mind now is a story of, a true story of, uh, there was the horrible uh, terrorist attack in Paris, uh, and um, the terrorists went to three venues at once, all over Paris one night, and they had, in one instance they went to a club, I think it's called the Bataclan Club, and they slaughtered a hundred people. And a man, Antoine Lutiris, I'm probably saying his name wrong, was sitting at home with uh, his 18-month-old child because his wife had wanted to go out that evening to the club with her friends. And he said, sure, I'll babysit. And then he suddenly gets texts, are you okay? He doesn't know why. And then within a short time, his brother calls and says, turn on the news. And he sees that the Bataclan has been attacked and the police are going in. And then is his wife amongst, you know, those uh, victims. And it took almost, I think, 48 hours. And he went with his brother and went to all these hospitals and utter chaos in Paris. And um, finally, yes, his wife was one of the victims. It was devastating. And he has to go identify her. And so after he's going through all this and he has his 18 year old son and he's dealing with this horrific tragedy and the shock of this whole event and all that he can think to do is to make a simple post on facebook and he, what he says is you shall not have my hate he says i know that's what you want you want my hate but you will not have it I will love, and I will continue to love, and I will teach my son how to love, and we will laugh, and we will enjoy freedom, and we will not give you our hate. And it was such a, you know, it's a post on a Facebook. It's just a way for him to express into the unknown his sorrow, his grief, his rage, and it was very simple. And it was the shot heard round the world. It went viral. It went all over everywhere. He didn't, you know, and here he is alone in his grief and, you know, his neighbors and family are coming around to help him. But he opens up his mailbox just a few 
days later, and it's over, it's overflowing with people writing him, including a beautiful, elegant letter from a man uh, who uh, who simply wrote, "You have given us all courage." because he was setting an example for what to do in the face of terrorism. And it, it was such an extraordinary portrait to me of that one little thing. You don't, he didn't know, he didn't, and frankly he said, I don't wanna be a hero, I'm not a hero. People were saying, what a hero? He said, no, I'm not a hero. He was doing the one thing he could do that was appropriate and it had this, explosive ripple effect empowered people to have to have a new mentality and attitude about how to face you know this growing monster amongst us terrorism and and so i think about that that those simple gestures that are new to us but they're ordinary and if we would just act on them and frankly it all comes down to the action what I'm always talking about is it's the one thing you do, and the rest is tenacity. The rest is just following through and putting one step after the other. That's the beginning of courage. That's the beginning to the life well lived. And that's, those are the stories that I hear, or the stories that people are longing to tell, or those are the stories of people who have regrets. If only I had done that one thing returned that call, you know, done that one gesture. That's, that's why we listen to stories. You know, usually at the, at the close of this podcast, I would ask, you know, if I gave you a stage and a microphone and, and, and one thing, what would you want people to know? And I feel like, but I'm going to let you answer I feel like you just answered it without me asking, which is a beautiful thing, but I'm going to pose it to you anyway, just in case there's anything else. But for me, that was, that answer is, is more, more than I could have hoped for to the question. I think that's what I would say. What I've just said is, and, and what I hope to impart to the students that I teach around the world um, and the stories that I hear that people I'm consulting on that people want to make into films or whatever is, uh, you know, life is not about these big heroic episodes, you know, where we took on and fought the great battle and survived all these things. You know, there's a great quote from Noam Chomsky where he talks about that most of life is the decency of ordinary people getting through the days and being kind and good and decent to each other. And I guess the one thing I would say that I'm fascinated by is that we've all been sort of rather obsessed with the hero's journey and the monomyth and Joseph Campbell and that's what we all want to be and who's the hero of the story. And what I constantly see is that the people we call heroes will always say to a person, I am not a hero. Do not look to me. I only did what was right. And that's what I am most interested in is we want a hero, but the people who are our heroes, they could care less. They only wanted to do that right and good thing 
that decent thing. Babette, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me. For coming. And, you know, what's been beautiful about this conversation to me, and I find it happens so much with the podcast, and it's always a gift, is, you know, the conversation that, you know, if I come with an agenda, a set of questions is an agenda in a way. If I come with an agenda, I find, you know, <laughs> and it's a humbling moment, usually the conversation has me more so than the other way around. And my agenda comes to be not at all the most interesting part of, of what we talk about. And this idea of story receiving and the ordinariness of the actions that we take and the vastness of the implications and the ripple effects that those actions have is, is something I'm gonna be thinking about for a long time, so thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.